The year is 1998, a year of box office blockbusters and an even bigger year for cult classics. Tom Hanks showed off his versatility, starring in the romantic comedy You've Got Mail and Steven Spielberg's critically acclaimed Saving Private Ryan in the same year. Edward Norton turned in a bone-chilling performance in the controversial film American History X. Jeff Bridges would embody the dude in The Big Lebowski. And my mama says Adam Sandler brought the character of Bobby Boucher to life in the comedy classic Waterboy. And while Sandler, a Saturday Night Live great, was reaching for the upper echelons of success, we would lose another famous SNL cast member. This is the story of Phil Hartman and how love, drugs, and success would end up costing him his life. I'm Justin Harvey, and you're listening to Death and Hollywood. Phil Hartman found his calling when he stumbled upon a comedy troupe called The Groundlings in 1975. The Groundlings were an independent improv group, now world-renowned. They've helped shape many comedy show writers and countless stars within the comedy world. It's there he would meet fellow comedian Paul Rubens. He helped Paul develop the character Pee-wee Herman and helped co-write Pee-wee's Big Adventure, this success gave him the chance to appear on Pee-wee's Playhouse as Captain Carl. The success of that show opened many doors for Hartman after he decided to leave over creative differences. In 1986, he would audition for Saturday Night Live. He once told a reporter he wanted to do SNL because it would give him the box office credibility to write his own movies. And whether that was his intention or not, he would become a loved member of the cast and stay on for eight years. He would become known as the glue in the writing rooms and backstages of SNL. Some say Adam Sandler gave him this moniker. Others say it was Jan Hooks, one of Hartman's frequent collaborators. Lorne Michaels, the show's creator, would explain the nickname saying Hartman held the show together. He would help anyone and everyone on the set. Rewrite skits, run lines all without asking for anything in return. Maybe that's why he was often considered the regular guy among the Hollywood egos that dominated that ensemble cast of the 90s. He was a talented imitator and impressionist. He voiced over 70 characters during his run at SNL, including President Bill Clinton. This impression became wildly popular for Hartman and would make him a household name across America. There's no doubt if he was alive today, he'd be doing his equally popular Donald Trump. Everyone who knew him remembers him fondly. The persistent nice guy, kind of shy and timid, but his energy would come alive when it was time for his game face. If you watch his roles, you'll notice he loved to be something of a villain, to drop the nice guy persona and become some annoying or vexing hated character. And man, could he do it. In the critically panned Jingle All the Way, he played the supporting role to Arnold and Sinbad. 
his character Ted was one of my favorite representations of this style. He played this perfect single father that neighborhood wives fawned over, literally threw themselves at him. Ted acting like, what's all this fuss about? Men are supposed to be this way. Helping drive that narrative that he's more capable than their husband. All the while we get to see the characters trying to slide into Arnold's marriage and drive wedges into it at every opening as he pines over Arnold's wife. Outwardly nice, caring, and empathetic, but showing the viewers what he really was. Conniving, sneaky, and calculating. If you haven't seen Jingle all the way, I can't say go to the bargain bin at Walmart right now and dig. But what I can say is if you're already digging and you can ignore the bad acting of the two main stars, the bad direction, the obvious plot, inside you'll find a shining Phil Hartman performance. When looking at Phil's personal life, one can't help but wonder if most of Hartman's life was an imitation. In 1993, he told People Magazine, as a child, he didn't make waves, that even as an adult, he had this people-pleasing, middle-child mentality. While this seemed to do his career well, his personal life suffered. He was married briefly in 1970, then again for barely three years in 1982. Lisa Stain, his second wife, would say Hartman would disappear emotionally, like his body was there, but he was in his own world. His passivity would make you crazy. If you'd called him on it, he'd tell you this is who I am and that's how it's going to be. This reclusiveness, this easygoing persona would continue to strain his relationships. In 1986, Hartman would meet a young woman named Bren on a blind date. She was working at the time as a Catalina swimsuit model and aspiring actress. She was a leggy blonde bombshell, tan with those bright California highlights. The moment Hartman seen her, he knew she was a babe, his dream girl, something he had never had before. A year later, they were wed. Some of Hartman's oldest friends were very vocal about concerns in the marriage, and it costed them Phil's friendship for many years. The marriage, though, was a successful one for the most part, especially to the outside world. A beautiful model, a charming, funny man on his way up, Bryn would become the mother to two children, Sean and Bergen with Hartman. Staying home more and more, pursuing acting less and less, she was said to be a devoted mother, always hanging out with the kids, driving them around. She wasn't a mother trapped by motherhood. This, as said, was the outside view. Just underneath the surface was an iceberg waiting for the right moment to sink the ship. See, since a young age, Bryn always seemed to be searching for herself, changing her name multiple times and moving to California to pursue her modeling career. She had always wanted more from her life, and maybe she thought her marriage to Hartman would aid in achieving that goal. Bryn's self-doubt and insecurities started showing through very early on, from the days in the small Manhattan apartment her and Hartman shared, she told friends she often felt excluded or isolated in Hartman's world. Bryn would grow to resent her husband's career as hers never took off. Small bit roles here and there, probably because of who her husband was, 
Well, at least that's how she probably seen it. She underwent plastic surgery multiple times. Some even suggested by Hartman, a former nanny said, this couldn't have been good for the mental health of a woman that was already unsure of her place in the shadow of her husband. Drugs and alcohol added to already existing mental issues of insecurities drove her to act out sometimes very publicly. She would have temper tantrums or overreact to small things. And one notable example, Phil's ex-wife sent him a congratulatory letter when his son was born. Bren responded with a four-page letter of warnings and threats and ended it with a death threat. Strain, the ex-wife, then called Phil and asked him if he knew who he was married to. He responded, you should have seen the letter she wanted to send. Hartman would shrug these instances off with his casual demeanor. That same casual demeanor he was known for, praised for, even loved for in his professional life, but it seemed lost on Bryn. She didn't get that guy. She received the withdrawn Hartman, the one the ex had spoke about, the man who didn't want to deal with conflict, the man that figured if he plugged his ears, the problem wasn't there. As years went by, frustration and jealousy would be the verbs that could be used when peering in the Hartman house. Cocaine and alcohol were being used by Bren in excess, and the Hartman's typical head-in-the-sand technique wouldn't work anymore. Bren spent some time in rehab off and on, and it's during this time Phil decided to leave Saturday Night Live. He was already lending his voice to The Simpsons, and the fan loved, loved his Troy McClure voice. In 1995, he became one of the stars of the NBC sitcom News Radio. Many cast members of this time have spoken about Phil and Bryn's relationship. News Radio, while critically acclaimed, had poor viewership. It featured a great cast. Besides Hartman, it had Dave Foley, Andy Dick, and since you're listening to me on a podcast, a guy you've probably heard of, Joe Rogan. Joe Rogan has talked about being close with Hartman multiple times on his podcast. He has told stories about the relationship and said that Bryn was a mess by this time, with or without the drugs. She'd publicly talk shit about Phil. He said it opened his eyes to the dangers of bad relationships. If we are to believe the rumors, Andy Dick, one of Hartman's castmates on news radio, did cocaine with Bryn at a New Year's Eve party in 1997. And that helped start Bryn down what would turn out to be a deadly combination of cocaine, alcohol, and Zoloft. A combination that is said to have major complications, such as psychotic breaks. A combination that would come to a head at the Hartman house in the wee hours of the morning on May 28, 1998. Days leading up to that fateful night, seen an erratic Bryn. The mix of antidepressants and cocaine caused violent outbursts and even led their housekeeper to quit that week. On May 27th, Bren went to dinner with her friend Christine Zander, a producer for NBC. Bren was said to have a couple of Cosmos over a few hours and was reportedly in good spirits when she left. Upon arriving back home, it's believed Hartman and her began fighting over her drug use Eventually, the fight followed the normal pattern. 
Bren screaming, then Hartman telling her if she continues to use drugs, he's done. The relationship's over. To complete the cycle, Hartman had ended the fight by going to sleep, and in the morning, she'd be calmed down and all would be well. Instead, what happened is Bryn started drinking and drinking heavily, crying, thinking about her life, thinking of her perceived failures, thinking of her toxic relationship, and if it was even worth saving. According to police that reconstructed the crime scene, the most likely scenario goes like this. In a few hours after Phil went to sleep, his right leg bent and laid atop a sheet his left arm extended where his wife would lay. Bryn would creep into the master bathroom. There on a shelf, a lockbox. This is where they kept their firearms and ammo. She'd retrieve a Smith & Wesson 38 and load it. She walked over to the edge of the bed, standing next to her husband. Possibly still crying, arms shaking, she lifts the gun till it's in line with her husband and fires. A second and a third shot follow. One strikes Phil in the right side of his neck. Another goes through his forearm and into his chest. A third shot, and the most damaging, is fired at point-blank range and enters just above the bridge of Phil's nose, passing through his skull and resting. The death was quick, hopefully instantaneous. Hartman, being the man he is, appears to be smiling almost as if his pleasant dreams went unspoiled. An hour or so later, probably after more alcohol, and who knows, maybe more cocaine, Bryn phones her longtime friend, Ron Douglas, who lives nearby. She tells him Phil isn't home, and she doesn't want to be alone. He tells her it's late, and she can't leave the kids alone when she talks about coming to his house. He tells her, take some aspirin, go back to sleep. Irritated about the late call, he was going to do the same. Twenty minutes later, Douglas hears his doorbell being rang over and over, followed by banging in between on the door. He answered the door for a disheveled Bryn. She's wearing a long sleeve pullover, pajama bottoms, argyle socks, and no shoes. She clutches her purse as he opens the door. He catches a heavy odor of alcohol on her breath. She's messed up. He can tell. Douglas is angry. She can tell. Don't yell at me, Bryn says. I get enough of that at home. She stumbles into the house and tries to sit on the sofa. Misses. She slides to the floor. Crying, she utters something about killing Phil. Douglas thinks an hysterical statement. Assuming just another fight. Besides, she's clearly messed up. She appears to be nodding off, so Douglas chastises her again. You smell like a damn brewery. Bryn complains of her stomach. Worried she might be overdosing, Douglas stops her from falling asleep. She runs to his bathroom, and Douglas can hear her getting sick. And it's like this for a bit. Start to fall asleep, wake her up, then she runs off to the bathroom to get sick. During one of these wake-ups... She rummages through her purse, and a thirty-eight tumbles out onto the floor. Douglas is taken back. What are you doing with this, he says. Give it to me. She exclaims, I told you I killed Phil. He opens the weapon and spins its chamber. Thinking he's seen six rounds, 
a sense of relief sets in, and he puts the gun in a kitchen drawer, remaining doubtful about the ramblings of his intoxicated friend on his floor. After two hours or so of this back and forth, Bryn finally appears sober enough to drive home, but only agrees to do so if Douglas follows. It's a little before 6 a.m. now, and the sun's starting to rise. It won't be long now before her children awaken. She tells Douglas to grab the gun. As he fetches it, now being more awake, he notices empty chambers. His stomach drops. Maybe his friend didn't have it fully loaded. Maybe in her drunken stupor, she fired a couple warning shots. Douglas and Bran pull into her house on Encino Avenue, and Douglas brings the gun inside with him. Once inside, he follows Bryn down to the hallway to the master bedroom. He peers in and sees Phil's motionless body. Oh my god, he's dead, Bryn screams. I told you I did. I told you I did. I killed him, and I don't know why. Douglas is frozen with horror with what he's seeing. Bryn, panicking, makes another call this time. To her friend Stephen Marcy, who just lived three blocks away, Hearing Bryn say, I killed Phil, is all it took for them to get dressed and start rushing over. Douglas, dad, slumped into the hallway. There's a nearby phone, so he calls 911. Doug stutters through the dispatcher's questions and informs them that he's still there, he has the weapon, and that Phil appears to be dead. He is told officers are on the way. While Douglas is on the phone, Bren slips into the bedroom and locks herself in. Douglas tries to get in, but really he's thinking how to get out of there. He starts to leave, but the door is dead bolted and he can't find a key. At 6.21, and in an emotionally shattered state, Bren calls her sister Kathy. She tells her sister, Phil is dead. Kathy responds, what do you mean? What happened? Bren is sobbing and unable to speak. Kathy says, calm down, take a breath, what happened? I don't, I don't remember. Tell the kids I love them. Kathy says, I know you love them. Bryn continues to scream and cry, and then she says, I've got to go, and hangs up. The very next moment, Bryn's phones ring. It's police. Bryn says, come in. The operator, ma'am? Yes. Is there someone in there that's been shot? Bryn crying, yes. Dispatcher, how many people were in the house? Bryn simply cried, said help me, and hung up. In this time, Douglas grabbed the Hartman's son, Sean, from the bedroom. They have to get out of there. Sean knows where a key is, he gets it, and him and Douglas exit the house. Douglas hands Sean over to the approaching LAPD. Douglas gives the officers arriving a quick rundown and informs him that Bran and six-year-old Brigham is still inside. Several officers make their way into the west side of the house through the door left open by Douglas. Officers head down the hallway that leads to the bedroom, taking positions all along the hallway for entry. Loud sobbing and screaming can be heard from the other side of the door. One of the responding officers Here's a single gunshot around 6.38 a.m., but is unsure of its source location. The response team then begins clearing the bedrooms with caution. Finding Bergen, she is rushed to the house to safety.
Once removed, the police decide to use diversionary tactics to remove Bryn with as little risk to her or the officers as possible. Two officers exit the house and move around the side, facing a window looking in on the Hartman's bedroom. The curtains are drawn closed. Los Angeles Police Department, come out with your hands up, the lead officer shouts two, maybe three more times, no answer coming from within. Using a garden brick, one officer throws it through the glass while officers inside the house force entry into the bedroom. They find a gruesome scene. Hartman dead, three gunshots close range. Bryn laying next to him, her head leaning towards her husband, a hole in the headboard from a fatal thirty-eight. A different revolver, a charter arms, still grasped in her right hand, her finger still on the trigger. Phil and Bran are both dead, but nobody knows why. In accordance with the Hartman will, Sean and Bergen would go to live with Bren's sister in the Midwest. Phil Hartman was cremated in Glendale, California, and his ashes spread over Santa Catalina Island. Hartman will always be loved by the people he worked with and the millions of people who found joy in the characters he created. Maxim named Hartman the top SNL performer of all time. In 2012, Hartman was inducted into the Canadian Walk of Fame, and in 2014, he received a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. His last movie, called Small Soldiers, was released after his death. You'll be forever missed. Rest in peace, Phil Hartman. If you like this story, please hit subscribe and leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to this show. If you really like this story and want to help us grow, please share it with just one friend. You can join the conversation by following us on social media. And if you'd like to support us financially, you can become a subscriber at anchor.fm and you'll be listed as a producer in the credits of the next show.